Superb. Well, at two minutes to 12, I think I'm still allowed to wish you a good morning. My name's Nathaniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you today. And we're actually uh, going through a series at the moment in 2 Corinthians that we're calling our Prepare series. And we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians and looking at the encouragements that are given by the Apostle Paul to the church that he planted in the Greek city of Corinth. And as we do so, we're looking for God to speak to us and shape our hearts and our ministry as we prepare for January to move back into two locations as a church. Now, if you've been here for a while, you'll know that we've been together for a little while now whilst we complete our building work up at Older Road, and then we uh, move back to two congregations uh, or two uh, sites locations from January. And um, if you were in the first service, then you'll know that it was standing room only. Uh, It was absolutely packed, which was a real pleasure. But I think going back into those two locations means more leg room for everyone, at least, which which is good. This morning, we're talking in our Prepare series about preparing to be pastored and what it looks like to be pastored in a church context. And we're going to take our lessons from Paul in his pastoring of the Corinthian church. Paul's very direct with the Corinthians about what, past, uh, about what his pastoral ministry among them will look like in our passage today. And so we're in 2 Corinthians 12, and uh, my hope is that as we read this morning, we gain a greater understanding of what biblical pastoring looks like. Um, you'll need your Bibles this morning. There's plenty on the tables either side or at the back as well, because we're going to be going through um, uh, 2 Corinthians 12 and 13, and I'm going to pause every couple of verses as we go through just to explain what Paul's talking about. As we're talking about pastoring today, I acknowledge that for some that this might be quite a tricky or uncomfortable subject, especially if you've been in a context where you don't feel like you've been pastored particularly well in the past. And so I want to start just by praying for us, if I may, and then uh, we'll jump into the text. Lord, as we open your word and hear from you today, I just want to pray that you'd be opening our hearts. I pray, Lord, for humility. I pray for an extra measure of grace, Lord, that you'd be speaking to us, that you'd be ministering to us and that we'd be moved by you through the words of 2 Corinthians. In your name I pray. Amen. Great. So we're going to start reading in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11. And like I said, we're going to go a couple of verses at a time and work our way down through to 2 Corinthians 13, 10. So it starts, Paul's concern for the Corinthians is the heading. I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. For, am I not, for I am not the least inferior to the super-apostles, even though I'm nothing. I've persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs and wonders and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. First thing I'll point out is the forgive me this wrong. We should see the irony of it there. It's like Paul saying, forgive me for not being a burden to your church. Oh, next time I'll come and cause you all sorts of trouble then, if that's what you want. We're supposed to see the irony in that context there. But Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, and he's imploring them to understand who they are in Jesus and reject the corruption that's in the church. And Paul speaks as someone who intimately knows Jesus and He boasts in Christ's strength and his own weakness. Even as he starts here, he says, even though I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I know my weakness, and he knows Christ's strength. And he underlines it when he talks about his ministry, which is full of signs and wonders and miracles. So when he comes and he speaks to the church, God moves in these incredible ways. And he's really clear to point out, this isn't me, this is nothing I'm conjuring up, there's nothing great about me, Paul. It's all the work of God through me, which is amazing. There's a beautiful description from a theologian called Kent Hughes in his commentary of 2 Corinthians as to why Paul writes in this way. 
Kent Hughes says, Paul rejoiced in his limitations because Christ in his power literally pitched his tent with him in his weakness. I love that idea of Christ coming to pitch his tent with us in our weakness. That's good news for us as Christians here this morning. If you're here and you feel weak, and let's be honest, we all feel weak from time to time, in those moments, Christ comes and pitches his tent alongside us. We're not alone. We're there to rest on the strength of Christ, which is brilliant. And in it, Paul's showing us what it means to be a good pastor. Good pastors aren't self-promoters. They're not the super apostles. They're Jesus promoters. And Paul isn't like all those other super pastors who come along and just end up being a burden to the church. When he comes, he brings Jesus. What an example to the pastor and to the pastors here at Gateway. We're to make much of God and little of ourselves to point people towards Jesus. Our role as pastors in church isn't to tut and pass judgment, but an understanding of who we are, how we're all weak and are perfected by Christ's strength helps us to have a healthy understanding of what it means to be pastors. None of us can boast in our own perfection, but Christ's perfection allows us to point one another to him. And that's true whether you would call yourself a pastor in the Gateway Church or whether actually we pastor and lead one another, pointing one another to Jesus. We're not here to make people feel their weakness, but to stand in the truth of Christ's strength. And in that, there is no shame because we're all weak and we all need Christ's strength. And so our role is to point people towards Jesus, and that's a great thing to be able to do. Back to 2 Corinthians then, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, now verse 14, we're going to read on. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have (coughs) and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I've caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Again, in our lesson on pastoring, there's another beautiful moment here in Paul's pastoring of this church when he says, I don't want your possessions. It's not what I want. What I want is you. He also says, I'll I'll spend everything for you. It's this beautiful sentiment. He loves these people. His words are coming from a place of love. When he writes to this church and he's bringing correction and he's talking to them, it's coming from a heart of love. I want you and I want you for Jesus. And he'll give everything to make it happen. And he draws this illustration of a parent-child relationship. Parents want the best for their children and often that's not what the child wants but what the child needs. Now, I've got three children myself. They're eight, six, and one. And as you'd imagine, the one-year-old is absolutely desperate to be treated like the eight-year-old. And everything that she does is wanting to be more and more like her sisters. And so it causes an awful lot of stress in our house, especially when the kids come home every day. As any kids do, they get home, they throw their bags and their shoes to the four corners of the house uh, and then they get ready and then they want to go and play out in the garden and they want to go and play with some of the neighbor kids and so they rush out and they go and they get playing and there's this little one-year-old who's trying to chase after them and follow them around desperate to go out and desperate to go and play and be with her sisters and be with the other kids and do what she wants to do and we feel really mean every time when we've got to shut the door and hold her back because she's not quite allowed to go out yet because she's too young the reality is she doesn't understand where she is. She doesn't understand how to get back home if she walks out of the garden. She doesn't understand what to do when she's faced with a car if she finds her way onto the road. And so our love for her in holding her back isn't to hold back her sense of adventure, but because we want to love and care for her and make sure she doesn't get squished under a car. 
And I love the sentiment that Paul shares with these words, this kind of sense of pastoring for them, this guidance and correction that can sometimes be a little bit uncomfortable and feel restrictive, but it comes from this place of love. This same correction is a comforting act that brings security and helps to walk in the ways in which God would have us walk. As parents, we'd give everything if it meant safety and security for our children, and pastors are called to love and provide safety and security in that same way. And that's what's being talked about here. Kent Hughes again says, true ministry selflessly seeks the spiritual welfare of others, gladly spending and being spent. This is true whenever you serve, be it with believers or unbelievers, or children or students, or the ill, or in the pulpit, or in world missions. This is what is most needed if authentic ministry is to take place, joyously seeking the best for others and gladly spending self. The reason I say it's beautiful, because actually what's being spoken about here, you can imagine it in Gateway Church. If we um, served with that heart of selflessly wanting to point one another towards Jesus, whether we're stood here on a Sunday morning or at Gatehouse on a Thursday and a Friday or with the youth as they are now or out back with the kids, actually that idea of selflessly, gladly being spent so that we can point people towards Jesus and the thing, um, <clears throat> and the thing that we most prize is a beautiful way to kind of pastor and a beautiful way to serve. And that's what's being spoken about here. We see it modeled in Paul as he seeks the spiritual welfare of the church in Corinth. And it's something that, of a model for us here at Gateway as well. Back to 2 Corinthians then. We're going to keep reading. Now we're in 12 verse 19 and on. It says, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, everything we do, is for your strengthening. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity and sexual sin and debauchery in which they've indulged. Again, another pastoral moment from Paul, giving us a sense of what it is to pastor. He tells them, everything I do is for your strengthening. He shares these lists of fears of what's going on in the church. There's sin, there's corruption. And in this moment, he's calling it out. And so far, Paul's been really clear, and he's been quite cutting, and he's calling out sin, but he's spoken about his heart for love, of love for the church that he planted, for the people there. He's showing us what that good pastoring looks like. It's this balance of overflowing love and good discipline that come together in the way that we pastor. And it's here that I want to pause and point out what happens where there's an imbalance in one of those two things, either misplaced love or misplaced discipline. And the first is this. It's kind of this misplaced love. And I think, <clears throat> especially in kind of the wider context of our culture, there's this understanding of pastors as these kind of twee vicar of Dibley types that would bulk at the sight of a first swear word. Oh my goodness, you know. And pastors who then end up being kind of afraid to challenge or to apply scripture or to too easily give into culture for fear of being chastised or fear of confrontation when calling out sin. And what that creates is compromise and that creates liberalism and a do-what-you-want type of culture that in the end creates churches that are soft on sin and can be soft on the gospel. And that's not what we want here at Gateway. Often this comes from a good place, wanting to show love to all, but without the correction and the discipline, as Paul has shown us so far, and that's not true pastoring. Even as I was preparing for this message, I spotted a quote from Peter Lightheart on the subject, and it read, if you're not willing to confront the sins of the church and culture, don't take a step towards the pulpit. 
And it stopped me in my tracks because I was actually preparing for my sermon at the time, thinking, well, I'm going to stand here. That's a very uh, hard thing to read. The reality is, as pastors, we're called to guide people and point people through all sorts of circumstances that Paul feared were happening in the church in Corinth. And <clears throat> if you think about the context of the culture around us, it's certainly happening in Paul, isn't it? We see those sorts of things happening. And they're not sort of things that he listed off the top of his head. When he's talking about these things, he's not thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to give kind of a bit of a list of, of things that we assume might be happening in the church. But they're, actual, they're things that, um, that he, he knows are happening in the church from his, his second journey, things that, things that he, 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 when he visited the church and when he has heard testimonies of what's going on in the church, that they're happening, and he feared in returning he would find them happening again, people unrepentant for the things that he'd called out before. And it's really hard in those moments to see that. In my own pastoring here at Gateway, it's been a great joy to be in people's lives, to share the high moments, the baptisms that we've had two of this morning, to stand and cheer and, uh, uh, and give glory to God for um, lives being changed by him. That's a great moment to be able to celebrate in the life of the church. It's a pleasure to come and celebrate marriage, two people being joined together under the sight of God to live their lives together for him. A beautiful moment. New babies being born among us. Even this week, we celebrated the birth of baby Monty Carrier, uh, which is great, and to be able to come and celebrate the highs of uh, people's lives. And I wish that that's what life was like, that a pastor's life was just full of baptisms and marriages and babies and all of the good things. But actually, that's just not real life, is it? Real life isn't just highs, and we know that there can be struggles, and actually there's not a single person in this room who hasn't experienced that, who hasn't experienced something of the highs and the lows, who hasn't found themselves in hard times. Which one of us can say that it's all been highs in life? It just isn't real life. We even preached last week on preparing for war. There's a reality that not only do these lows come, but we should expect them, because that's, that is real life. That happens. Sometimes the battle's very real indeed, and sometimes the lows come. And when the lows come, we can be tempted. We can be tempted by sin, and we can stumble, and sometimes we fall. I once heard it said that pastors should be the most unsurprised people in the world, because they're the people that have heard it all, that have prayed for it all, that have walked with people through it all. And sometimes that means confrontation when it comes to sin. Pastors can't be soft on it. The loving thing to do in that sort of circumstances, to call it out and to lead people back to Jesus. And that leads me on to the second of our two problems, and that's uh, the opposite end of the pastoring scale. And that's something that we might term heavy shepherding or over-discipline and not enough love. And I think the world's seen an awful lot of that recently with authorities that get corrupted by leaders whose own egos or power trips or greed or sin kind of takes over. And I want to be really clear that if you've been in a context where that's happened, it's deplorable. It's not right. That shouldn't be going on, especially not in churches. And if you've seen situations like that before, then I truly am sorry. And unfortunately, newspapers have brought to light that it's happened far too often in the recent history of the church. And it's a clear acknowledgement of the fact that pastors need pastoring too. No one's beyond the need for accountability, for a check in their own heart and their own motive. The discipline of a pastor is never meant to wound and never meant to diminish or belittle, but always to build up and to point people towards Jesus. And our desire as pastors is to oppose either ends of that scale and instead lead well for the good of the church and for God's glory, to see people released into a fullness of faith in Jesus and a life of adventure, not being held back or stifled by sin. 
And that calls for love, and it calls for patience, and care, and guidance, and unfortunately, sometimes it also calls for discipline. And you might have heard of the, the, that term, church discipline, and church discipline is actually a biblical framework, and Paul actually goes on to talk about it in this passage. And it happens for the protection of the church and for its people. So if we carry on reading our passage this morning, uh, I'll uh, give you a sense of what it means. Now, the next part in our passage starts with the heading, Final Warnings, which can never be a good sign, but we'll uh, power on. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. Now I repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or, of, or any other of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we're weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. See, sometimes unrepentance, sin, disobedience towards God needs to be called out for the good of the individual to bring them back into right relationship with God, for the good of those who are being hurt by the actions of that person and the protection and the sanctity of the church as a whole. Our band did a brilliant job of leading us in singing this morning, but when we come back to sing again shortly, uh, imagine a song starts and everybody's playing their absolute best, doing really well, and then one of the musicians decides, actually, do you know what? I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to change the key. I'm going to play something different. And what would that do to our time of singing? Actually, it would change. It would distract, wouldn't it? Like, all of a sudden, you're not thinking about Jesus. You're not praising. You're not worshiping. You're thinking, well, who's playing the wrong notes? What's going on here? Like, something's wrong. Something's not happening. And it could be a little bit like that in a context where sin enters into a church. It can corrupt, it can distract, it can hurt, it can detract our attention away from God. And if pastors of the ch- as pastors of the church, we want to be on guard to help protect the flock from these things. Practically for us, that means being serious with sin and calling it out when we see it. Asking people to step down from serving for a season while they work through their sin towards repentance or even stepping away from the church for a season for the good of the congregation as a whole. And let me be clear, in these sorts of circumstances, and I'm pleased to say they happen very rarely, It's always heartbreaking. They can be incredibly painful moments in church life, but sometimes they're necessary as we guard the church as a whole. Brett McCracken wrote a book called Uncomfortable, and in it he calls for the embrace of the full gospel. He actually has a chapter on authority, and he frames the problem quite well in it. He said, We live in an age that's averse to authority, and understandably so. Authorities we used to trust have time and time again disappointed us. Western culture's individualistic consumerism amplifies our resistance to authority. Unwillingness to submit to authority is one of the big reasons people abandon church or create their own custom spirituality. But when one's own personal narrative, experience of God, feelings and desires provide the only authoritative framework for faith, faith is unsustainable. We love church. We believe in being a community together. And as Christians, first and foremost, we're called to submit to God, to recognize that we're not all that, that we can't do it all, we can't save ourselves, that we need someone to do it, we need a savior. And that submission is right at the heart of the gospel. It's a submission to the ruling authority of God in this world, in eternity, and in our hearts. And so we submit to Jesus, who died in our place, and we live our lives in gratitude of it, being serious with sin in the pursuit of purity. And so as we're kind of coming to the end of of, uh, our passage in 2 Corinthians this morning, I just want to stop and say, well, what does that mean for us then? What does what we've read so far mean for us in Gateway Church in 2022? 
and what does it mean to be pastored? Now, I don't know if you know this, but there are three words most commonly used to describe a church leader in the New Testament. And those three words are presbyteros, which would uh, translate as elder, or it's where our word for priest comes from, or episkopos, <clears throat> which we would trans, uh, translate as overseer, or poimen, which translates to shepherd, or in the context of today's message, pastor. And at the beginning of 1 Peter 5, Peter actually uses all three descriptions in two sentences, and it's an ex- excellent encouragement for pastors not to be harsh authoritarians or shy and retiring, but shepherds who guard and guide and govern the flock that God has entrusted to them. So I'm going to read from you, <coughs> to you from 1 Peter 5 to show you what I mean. Peter says to the elders among you, I appeal as, fel- as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of the flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. I actually really like the term shepherd when it comes to thinking about what pastoring means. And I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the word shepherd, my head immediately goes to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. It's the first thing that kind of pops into my head whenever I hear that term shepherd. And it's great that we can visit that psalm and have a look at God as our shepherd and the example that we see of him shepherding us through it. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I've always found that quite a weird statement to put in the middle of this kind of beautiful passage. You're hanging out in the green pastures, it's all quiet waters, and all of a sudden, boom, rod and staff, there it is. And we're told that it's there to bring comfort. But does this look comfortable to you? It's a shepherd's staff available uh, for all good preaching illustrations at your online shop. But um, this is, is what we mean when we talk about our rod and our, the rod and staff bringing comfort. Um, this is slightly more flimsy than uh, a real one. But <clears throat> actually, there's this sense that it, it doesn't look at first sight to be a particularly comfortable thing. It's this strange juxtaposition of something like the tool like this bringing comfort. But actually, for a, a shepherd, uh, you'd need a tool like this for a few reasons. Firstly, you'd want to keep your flock together. You'd want to make sure that none of your sheep get lost. And sometimes that means a little correcting in the path. It means that you might, from time to time, need to bring sheep together, and you need a tool like this to do it. Another thing that you might need a tool like this for is to keep predators away who want to come and pick sheep off. And in those sorts of circumstances, it's good to have something in your hand that you can use to protect and to guard the flock. And it's kind of a reminder for us that bringing comfort isn't always comfortable, but it's actually always meant for our good. It's great to be able to go to passages like Psalm 23 and understand that we can look to the great shepherd, our perfect and ultimate pastor, who will always act with love and with grace and with truth. And it's our pleasure to be under shepherds to God, to submit to his authority and to understand that it's all about him and our role is to simply to point to him and to his greatness. And it's actually one of the things that I've always really loved about Psalm 23. It doesn't shy away from the realities of life. Within a few simple verses, you've got 
dark valleys and times where rods and staff are needed, and then and there's times where hard, there's some hard yards to walk. And yet there's also times in life of green pastures and quiet waters, the highs. There's a kind of whole span of human existence in one short psalm. I think it's a really beautiful way of summing up life and God's role in being the great shepherd through it. As pastors, our commitment is to walk those hard yards alongside you. And sometimes that's going to look like quiet waters, and sometimes that might mean a staff. But it's always for the glory of God and always from a place of love. At Gateway Church, we try and summarize our role as elders uh, with the words guard and guide and govern. And like shepherds guard their flock, we want to guard the people. We want to be on guard for the schemes of the enemy. We want to be on guard in the teaching that we bring. We want to be on guard for anything that might cause issues in the church. Practically, that means that we put time into what we teach. We think very carefully about what we say on a Sunday morning. We appoint an elder or a senior leader each Sunday to come and stand and to help us bring our meetings together to think about the words that are being brought and the ways in which we're being pointed to Jesus. We want to guide, and that means being in the lives of the church community. It means having open homes and honest conversations, asking good questions. <coughs> Whenever we're walking through <coughs> difficult circumstances with people, I often say that my role here isn't to pry, but to pray. Like, I'm asking these questions not because I want to gossip or need to know all the facts. I want to, say, I want to, I want to know because I want to know how I can best pray for you and support you and encourage you and point you back to Jesus. And as a shepherd uses his crook to help keep the flock on straight paths and not get lost, we want to guide people in biblical truth to an adventure of faith and to purity in action and to compassion for the world around us. And as pastors, we're here to govern. As elders at Gateway Church, we're called to elder, to exercise wisdom and maturity, to make good decisions to benefit the life and the future of the church. We're actually, uh, 2025 marks the... uh, 100th year of Gateway Church as a church goes right the way back to nearly 100 years of history. And what a pleasure it would be to have a community of believers 100 years from now praising and giving glory to God. We might not ever meet any of those people, but we can help make decisions that would uh, govern the church in such a way that we're setting up for a great future uh, for the kingdom uh, advancing in Poole and Bournemouth and beyond. So how do we respond this morning to what we've heard? How do we prepare to be pastored as we head back into two locations. It's here I want to return to 2 Corinthians and finish off our reading this morning in verse 13. We're going to read the last part of this, today's passage to help shape our response. So 2 Corinthians 13 now, starting in verse 5. It says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test, and I trust you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we've stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against truth, but only for the truth. We're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you also may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not be harsh in my use of authority, the authority God gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Paul's plea to the church in Corinth is to remember who they are in Jesus. And because Jesus was crucified for all those that have faith in him, the call is to live a life honoring of the sacrifice that was made for us. That means less of Paul's list of fears 
and more of the fruit of the Spirit, things like peace and patience and self-control and a life of purity. As we prepare for life here at 502 from January and at our older road site, let's be quick to pastor one another towards Jesus. Let's keep a short account of our sins. As pastors, we're here to listen and to pray. You can't shock us, at least nobody has yet. And we're not here to condemn, we're here to build up and not tear down. That's what Paul says, to build up and not tear down. And it's a pleasure to be able to be called to do this in this church. And so even today, I want to lead us in a moment of repentance now, a moment where we might want to examine our own hearts and any wrongdoing before God, and if appropriate, to speak to somebody who can walk the hard yards of reconciliation with you as you do. And so I'll end with Paul's plea to the church in Corinth and my plea to you today. Examine yourself. Are you living in the way that God would want you to? Do your actions match your faith? As we come back into a time of singing, let's examine our hearts. Are we living for God or for our own comfort? Is there anything that someone might call out of us that we need to deal with this morning? What might your conscience be saying to you or what might God be saying to you? If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it might be that as we've been singing and as we've watched the testimonies of people being baptized and as I've been speaking, you felt God prompting you to speak to him for the first time. And that's absolutely amazing. I'd love to talk to you about that. And for anybody else, if you need to talk to somebody this morning to confess to a friend or come and speak to uh, me or, or John or Vicky, Matt and Hannah all here this morning, would love to come pray for you to guide you and to walk the hard yards with you to right relationship with Jesus, to build you up and not to tear you down. Let me pray for us and then we'll come back and we'll sing. Do you want to stand with me and I'll pray? Lord God, first and foremost, I want to thank you for who we are in Jesus. Thank you that you sent your son to be the perfect example for us. To die and to raise again, defeating sin and death, that we can be in right relationship with you. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to live in that right relationship with you, to understand what you've done for us and our role in living a life for you. Lord, I pray you'd examine our hearts. If there's anything there that's not of you, I pray you'd bring it to light today. Lord, open and soften our hearts that we'd be receptive to your loving correction today, ready to walk out from here with a renewed sense of love and purpose because of your work in our lives. As we go back into two sites, I do pray, Lord, that we'd be people who are quick to point one another to your son, Jesus. that we'd be doing it to advance your kingdom, that we'd be doing it to be in good relationship with you and with one another. As As the great shepherd, I pray you'd be guiding our paths, pastoring us, prompting us, encouraging us, and leading us. In your name I pray. Amen.